And brothers and sisters, I would ask that you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Good morning to you. It's a joy to have you here at Community Bible Church this morning. As you turn to Mark 1, I want to ask you a question. Please pay attention to the question. Does everyone who believes believe? Does everyone who has faith in Jesus have faith in Jesus? If we understand Jesus' parable of the soils correctly, the answer to these questions is no. In Matthew 13, Jesus is in Galilee, preaching to a crowd gathered by the sea. He's preaching the parable of the soils. Are you personally familiar with the parable of the soils? In the parable of the soils, Jesus tells us that the seed of the gospel of salvation of the souls of men, that it goes out to four types of spiritual soil in the hearts of men, as it were. The roadside soil is one where it is eaten by the birds quickly. And there's the rocky soil, and the thorny soil, and finally the good soil. For friends, I would have you just look at the numbers. 75% of these soils begin to show evidence of the gospel seed that was sown in them, 75%. But only one in four of these soils, only 25%, will not be scorched by the sun or choked out by the thorns. Only 25% of the gospel seed that is sown into the fields of the spiritual lives of men will yield a genuine spiritual harvest. What Jesus was telling the crowd at the Sea of Galilee is what I'm telling you now. Not all faith is true faith. Not everyone who believes truly believes. This is how depraved the minds of men are. You've heard of bandwagon fans? Team gets on a winning streak. I mean, how many of you are Washington Huskies now? <laughs> you jump on the bandwagon, right? Because it's rolling through town and it's got a lot of noise and it looks real good and fun. You, you see, the human mind deceives itself regularly. There are pretenders in the faith. Many people have spurious, shallow faith. Many people create in their own minds a Jesus of their own understanding, and they worship him because he is easier to worship than the Son of God, who says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 13, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Friends, you need to understand that Jesus hates spurious, shallow faith. He doesn't create spurious, shallow faith. He doesn't appreciate it. He doesn't want to come close to affirming false believers in their false faith. He makes faith sound like what Levita said this morning. That's what faith sounds like. In fact, Jesus goes out of his way to rebuke fake faith, as we will see in John 4.48 today, and to prevent fake faith which we see in Mark 1.40. In Mark 1.40, where you are, Jesus is in Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God, when Mark says, And a leper came to Jesus, pleading with him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and he said, I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him out. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in desolate areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. Brothers and sisters, Mark 1.40, why did Jesus warn the cleansed leper to say nothing to nobody. Why? Isn't that odd? Shouldn't Messiah want people to know him and to see him perform so that they can believe in him? Isn't it the case that seeing is believing? Shouldn't Jesus want all of Galilee, his hometown, to see the fruit of his divine supernatural signs and miracles? 
That's what men say. That's what men believe. And the leper believed this. All the leper was trying to do was to help Jesus out. What's wrong with sharing the good news of Jesus' grace and healings and signs and miracles? What's wrong with that? See, most people look at this text and they have frustration with Jesus. Most people consider the text in front of us and wonder what kind of Savior would keep news of his healing power out of the public square. Most people are unwilling to acknowledge that seeing signs will not save anyone. Friends, this is what I want you to understand. Seeing signs is not salvific. Seeing signs is not salvific. Turn in your Bibles to John 1, 11. John 1, 11. Seeing miracles, seeing signs, does not produce salvation in someone's heart. No amount of miracles will make a man a believer in Jesus. Saving faith is the supernatural fruit of spiritual change on the inside. Never is saving faith sown into an unbelieving heart through outside signs, external miracles, or phenomenal experiences. Where signs and miracles offer great confirmation of spiritual power and have great purpose in Jesus' ministry, they in and of themselves do not confer faith into human hearts. This is what we see in John chapter 4 today. As we join Jesus and the disciples who are headed north to Galilee, the purpose of Jesus' ministry is belief. He wants all to believe his words. John MacArthur says, unbelief is the damning sin. It is the sin for which people are ultimately sentenced to hell since all other sins are forgiven for those who repent and believe in Christ. The problem is most people want Jesus around them for the signs and the wonders, and the miracles. Most people don't want to be impacted, however, by his words. They want to be marveled by his miracles. They don't want to be obedient to his message. You know what this looks like. Now, many of you are grandparents in this room. Grandparents love to lavish grace and blessings onto their grandkids, so they often come to visit the grandkids with gifts that are unmerited by their grandchildren, unearned gifts favor, you could say, grace from the grandparent to the grandchild. Money for birthdays, obviously, money for birthdays. And money and gifts for Christmas. This is how grandparents do this. Always physical world displays of favor, grace, and blessing. But let me ask you a question. If you bought your grandkids presents every time that you came to visit them, how would you know the depth of their love for you as a person? Would your continual gift-giving condition them in their hearts to love the presence you bring and not the person you are? Which would they love more, the gift or the giver? For this reason, I would expect that most grandparents have probably figured it out. Stop giving gifts every visit. You're dealing with sinful human hearts. Consider what Jesus did. Your greatest blessing is the warmth of your presence and the presence of your words. This is what Jesus gave to Israel and all of Judea and Galilee, his hometown. The warmth of his presence and the eternal wealth of his words, plus he gave them many signs. How did that work out for Jesus? We're told in John 1.11, John 1.11, where you are, in John's prologue. Jesus came to what was his own, the Jews. And those who were his own... They did not receive him. They should have received him. In chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Then he headed south into Jerusalem, and he told the Pharisees that he was himself the true spiritual temple. What was the result of Jesus' first ministry visit to his hometown with the Jews in Jerusalem? You can see there in John 2.23, where the apostle John reports Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw his signs, which he was doing. What kind of belief is that, by the way? Verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to those ones who were believing. For he knew all men, and because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Friends, what is inside the heart of every man? Well, to begin with, unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus, just like we see with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, the leading teacher in Jerusalem, all about true spiritual 
second birth. You must be born again. How was Jesus received by his hometown people in Galilee, Judea, the capital city, Jerusalem, even Nicodemus? We, we find out that the Jews loved signs and miracles, but few believed Jesus' message that he was Messiah. For contrast, however, Jesus heads straight north into the ethnically hostile environment of Samaria in John chapter 4. Now, please note that the story of the Samaritan woman, do we see any signs performed in the Samaritan woman's story? No, there are none. And yet, how did the hated Samaritans, who are not Jesus' hometown people, how did these hated foreigners, how did they respond to his words? Many Samaritans believed they gave testimony and great confession of Jesus, saying in John 4, 42, this one is truly the Savior of the world. Now, what does this tell us? What are we learning from this series of verses in the early chapters of John's gospel? We learn that signs are not salvific. Miracles do not make faith. Salvation came to many Samaritans because Jesus had a premeditated salvation appointment with a Samaritan woman during which he communicated in his words his deity, while at the same time, the Holy Spirit communicated in her heart that Jesus was telling the absolute truth. The Samaritan woman was saved supernaturally on the inside and made to worship in spirit and truth because truth revealed herself, himself to her. Truth revealed himself to her. Because truth is a person, a person named Jesus. John remembers the glory of the salvation harvest in Samaria because of the contrast with the Jews in Jesus' hometown. Not only with the Jews in Galilee, but those in Judea and Samaria as well, whose faith we see is fake. After sharing the glory of signless salvation in Samaria, he didn't need to perform there, the miracles, Jesus then headed north for his next divine salvation appointment, which will happen in his hometown, Galilee, where word about him had been spreading. Not that he was Messiah, claiming to be Messiah, the Son of God, the, the one spoken of in the Old Testament. No. Word had spread about Jesus being able to really marvel a crowd with many magical miracles. And so with this is the context in front of us the superficial sign-seeking faith of the Jews in Jesus' hometown contrasted with the supernatural, spiritual, saving faith of many in Samaria, we read John 4, 43. And after the two days in Samaria, from there he went into Galilee. For Jesus himself bore witness that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Then he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee. He went to him and was asking him to come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And while he was still going down, he, his slaves met him, saying that his son was alive. So he inquired of them the hour that he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the, that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. This is, again, a second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Scholars call this section of text from John chapter 2 through the end of chapter 4 the Cana Cycle which encompasses the first 16 months of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry starts in Cana and here returns to Cana of Galilee, his hometown, where he grew up. And this is where the Galilean people, they're the ones who knew him best. Interestingly, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend far more time reporting on Jesus' ministry in Cana of Galilee than the Apostle John, who only shares these two stories, these two sign events in chapters 2 and 4, and then John will return again to Galilee in his gospel to share Jesus feeding 5,000 from two fish and five loaves and walking on water in John 6. Outside of those, John's quiet. 
on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Otherwise, John doesn't spend a, a great deal of time covering the efforts of Jesus' ministry there. John seems to use the Galileans as a foil against true salvation, in opposition of true salvation. The typical Galilean response to Jesus' ministry is the opposite of Jesus' desire. He wants his hometown to believe his words, but they believe only in his ability to perform miracles. Nevertheless, Jesus returns to Galilee after committing two extra special salvation days to the Samaritans. Jesus returns to this hometown crowd who are full themselves of false, phony faith in him. James Montgomery Boyce says, at this point, Jesus Christ moved his ministry to Galilee precisely because he had not been received in Galilee previously. And it was therefore the Galileans above everyone else, his hometown people who needed him. Jesus, says Boyce, went to Galilee because the Galileans needed the gospel. And to that we say, thank you, Captain Obvious. Everyone needs the gospel, especially these people. Yes, the Galileans need the gospel again and again because they only like the signs. They're not listening to the message. They need to know Jesus is Messiah, just like the Samaritans knew Jesus is Messiah. The problem is, as we saw with the leper in Mark 1.40, word about Jesus' miracle working was spreading far and fast, delighting hearts and minds to physical world phenomenon, rather than news about Jesus being the Son of God, the promised Messiah of Israel. And for this reason, Jesus testified to the truth of a familiar proverb, saying, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Which is to say, your family doesn't want to hear the truth from you. Your neighbors don't want your theology. Your high school buddies are uninterested in whatever you know about salvation. And the reason is bigotry. Perhaps some of you here today have bigotry against your family members who proclaim Christ. In this case, you were just like the Galileans who watched Jesus grow up. They remember him as the little boy, just like all the rest. What changed with that little kid? What does he know that makes him worthy of an audience now? Where did he go and get the ability and the authority to teach truth? The greatest amount of scrutiny a prophet will ever face is in his own hometown. Regardless of the content of his message, the prophet will find the least amount of honor among the people who know him best. His flaws, his idiosyncrasies, his sins. Many might think for Jesus, heading home to Galilee to spread the gospel of salvation would be like shooting fish in a barrel. You'd think that word of Jesus' mighty ministry would have spread positively in his hometown to the extent that it actually lent itself to genuine salvation in people's hearts. You'd think that family members and friends would laud the carpenter's son who went to Jerusalem and performed great signs and miracles, and you'd think that Jesus would have a grand reception, a big party in his honor for making his hometown crowd so proud of him and the truth that he is spreading. But that's not the case at all, is it? No. There's no hero's welcome. There's no parade. Instead, what we run into in the text, looks like a genuine contradiction in verses 44 and 45, where we read in verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Brothers and sisters, is this a contradiction in the Bible? What are we supposed to do with, quote, a prophet has no honor, verse 44, and, quote, the Galileans received him in verse 45. R.C. Sproul says, what do we do with that? Scholars go through gymnastics, he says, to reconcile these two lines, verses 44 and 45. Let me say, says Sproul, that it would surprise me if John actually contradicted himself and to do it in consecutive sentences would indicate incredible stupidity on his part. Sproul gives the solution to the seeming contradiction saying, people rush to hear the gospel for what they can get out of it. He says people pursued Jesus for the benefit that they could derive from him without any sense of repentance for their sins, without any intent to bow to him as Lord, and without any willingness to receive him as Savior. And I would add, people rushed to Jesus without any desire to honor his word. 
People don't like what Jesus says because his words rightly condemn us all for our sins and leave us no option but to look to him alone for salvation, which he did supply at Calvary's cross. And see, men hate that message and don't honor his words because his words make us dependent on him and accountable to him. Men run away from Jesus for the same reasons that these looters at Walmart run away from the cops. They don't want the guy with the authority and the gun who can kill them, telling them no. And yet, oh, that they would understand, they will bow down before King Jesus, either now in this life with a repentant heart while they live, or most certainly after they die. The looters and you were all in the same boat. Philippians 2.19 speaks to this. This is the boat that we're all in when we die. Therefore, God has also highly exalted Jesus because of his work on the cross and bestowed a name on him which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you like to start today? Just an aside. Friends, there is no contradiction in these two verses in John 4, 44 and 45. When John says the Galileans received him, we need to understand the sharp contrast between receiving Jesus, A, on your own terms, and receiving Jesus, B, on his terms. The apostle John clears up any confusion on this issue by adding that the Galileans received Jesus, quote, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also had been at the feast. For this reason, the Galileans' receipt of Jesus was hollow and worthless, according to Philip Lloyd. Edward Clink says, although the Galileans welcomed Jesus, their motivations were drenched with their own selfish interests. John MacArthur says, they welcomed him merely as a miracle worker, they were curiosity seekers eagerly hoping to see Jesus perform some more sensational feats. The Galilean reception of Jesus was superficial. It was skin deep. It was trivial, trite, frivolous, and phony. They believe in Jesus the same way that Joe Biden and Pope Francis and Donald Trump believe in Jesus. Honor him with your lips, but your heart is far from him. Leon Morris captures the irony of no honor and the Galileans' receipt of Jesus, saying, the enthusiasm of the Galileans was dependent on the wonder arising from their sight of signs. Their very acceptance of him was thus, in its own way, a rejection of him, says Morris. They gave him honor of a sort, but it was not the honor that was due to him. They loved Jesus the way a rotten grandchild loves his grandpa for all that he can get out of him. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I say a rotten grandchild? Have you seen the depravity and rampant wickedness and selfishness that comes out of the hearts of men that would cause a grandson to extort blessings from his benevolent, patient, gracious grandpa? Now someone might say, Oliver, that's harsh, attacking the grandkids, come on. Grandchildren are not rotten. How could you say that? Well, maybe you're a brand new grandparent. Or you think that grandchildren are only ever infants. And that's just not true, friend. That sweet-smelling, smooth skin of your precious newborn grandchild will grow. And by three feet tall, you'll marvel at the sinfulness in their thoughts, words, and deeds that end up kicking you in the shins. <laughs> it won't be pretty for long, friends. And can I tell you this? I can say rotten grandchildren, not only because I've seen them, not that I have grandchildren myself, I've seen them, but more so because I know the condition of the human heart from birth. Every single one of us is born sinful to the core. And don't try to tell me that you were born in perfection or even some state of neutrality toward God. You were born hostile to God. That's the way you were born. You are a sinner just like the rest of us, rebelling, making your own kingdom. And for some the desire for a great physical world experience extends even to the extortion of grandpa for cash and goods. For this same reason, 
the Galileans received Jesus in hopes to extort and extract signs and miracles out of him. That's how sinful these people are in their hearts. Knowing his people want to make him their circus, sideshow, miracle clown boy, we read in verse 46, then Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. He came into this mess with these people. He came because he's sovereign and powerful. And there in Cana of Galilee at that same time was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Jesus returned to these people, proving the size and concern that he has for those whom he will save. He is willing to head into a hostile world, even a hostile, unbelieving hometown, in order to grace particular people with salvation. We see in Jesus' return to Galilee his great love and grace. Jesus' path in ministry is full of divine, evangelistic appointments that he won't miss. These divine appointments were known to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit before the foundation of the world when they were predestined, friends, and predetermined to save all of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Just as Jesus went to Samaria to save a nameless Samaritan woman on purpose because she would never choose to save herself, so too Jesus has come to Galilee to save a royal official who lives in Capernaum whose son is sick and dying. These are divine appointments. Jesus knows these people from eternity past. Friends, in case you didn't know this, your presence here today is also a divine appointment. From eternity past, God orchestrated the details of your life and the lives of those around you in such a fashion for you to be at Community Bible Church in so much that you've come and stay, sharing in the salvation stories of our sister, Levita Smith, and, who was just baptized, and the salvation story of the royal official from Capernaum and Galilee in John chapter 4. Do you know that you are here by God's choice and direction? What is the Lord trying to do in your heart by having you here? By orchestrating the details of your life that you would be here and feel the conviction to be here and long and desire to be here and stay here? Could it possibly be the case that God, like a good grandfather, is offering you his grace again today? Could it possibly be the case that today is the day of your salvation appointment with Jesus Christ? That today, through the words of Jesus in the text of Scripture, that you might feel, understand, and know that this Jesus can heal your filthy, wicked, sinful conscience just like happened to Levita. That you might know newness of life in Christ today and a hope of eternal life with him forever based on his promises. I would pray that your heart came here today seeking Jesus for salvation, not from the troubles of this physical world, but for salvation of your troubled conscience, which convicts you of your sinfulness every day. You see, the royal official's burden in our text is a sick and dying son physically. I pray that your burden today is your sin-sick and spiritually dead soul, which Jesus can breathe life into and cause to be made new. Jesus has the power and ability to save the soul of anyone. Jesus saves with, without partiality. He's impartial in saving. He'll save the Samaritan woman. He'll save Nicodemus from the high to the low, left to right, black, white, brown, green, rich and poor. He saves them all. He's impartial in his salvation and what a joy it is to know that. Jesus is not about to save this man because he is a royal official. Likely, he's serving in the court of Herod Antipas, who ruled as the Tetrarch of Galilee between 4 BC and 39 AD. You see, friends, his title, his access to wealth and power or influence in Herod's court, they mean zero to Jesus in the way of this man's salvation. Just as Jesus is neither more or less inclined to save the royal official based on his place of employment, so too Jesus is neither more or less inclined to save you today based on anything that you've said, done, or that you are. 
Jesus is not impressed by your title at work, nor is he reluctant to save you because of your tattoos or your history with alcohol and drugs. Jesus doesn't save us because we're worthy. He must save us because we're wretched. He must save us not because of the things on the outside that we've done. Or he must save us because of the filth on the inside. That's why Jesus saves. He fixes the filth on the inside and helps us to understand all the pain that we've caused on the outside. This royal official is building his own little kingdom of self. His kingdom includes a healthy son. He sees Jesus as the next servant in his kingdom required to help him build his little kingdom of self. Jesus can serve me. That's what he's thinking. He serves, this man does, he serves an earthly king. And he is seeking now to make Jesus serve him on his terms so that he can prove to Jesus that he's king of his own world. When all along, there is only one true king. There are three kings in the story, but there's only one true king. Brothers and sisters, who is the king of kings? Jesus is the king of kings. And as the king of kings, Jesus has plans to make this earthly, physical world, royal official, and eternal, spiritual world slave of Jesus Christ. Friends, can I tell you, there's no better title in life to have affixed to your chest than slave of Jesus. Jesus has this title prepared for this man, but not before crushing his kingdom of self by refusing to follow him to Capernaum and making him believe and obey Jesus' word alone, which will cause him to become a slave of Jesus, evangelizing the lost in his own home, thereby building up the kingdom of Jesus, not self. And it's all going to happen in a period of just over 24 hours. The royal official is drawn in by Jesus' miracles, which work perfectly for Jesus to test his spiritual character. In order to prove to that he is a total spiritual failure and in need of Jesus' grace. Only then will Jesus apply the gracious rescue required to save this official soul eternally, causing him to believe. Friends, you must understand, Jesus tests the souls of men to prove to us the content of our spiritual character. Jesus tested the content of the spiritual character of the Samaritan woman at the well in our text today, Jesus does the same with the royal official from Cana. Jesus tests the spiritual character of his soul. He tests his faith. In our text today, John report, records three tests of the royal official's faith that prove belief is based on Jesus' words. John records three tests of the royal official's faith that prove, that prove belief is based on Jesus' words. John reports three signs of a father's spiritual health that reveal the moment he first believes. What three tests of faith reveal the moment a father first believes based on Jesus' words alone? These three tests. The first of three tests of the royal official's faith is, number one, Jesus' return. And the test is this. Will the royal official come? Verse 47. The second test of the royal official's faith is Jesus' rebuke. And the test is the question, will the royal official stay? Verses 48 and 49. The third test of the royal official's faith is Jesus' rescue. Number three, Jesus' rescue. And the question is, will he obey? Jesus' return, Jesus' rebuke, Jesus' rescue. That's the outline of the text. And it goes with the questions that test the spiritual character of the man. Will he come? Will he stay? Will he obey? Jesus has planned a great salvation for this royal official and his whole household, which is really awkward, friends, when you begin to think about it, that it all starts with a boy laying on a bed so sick that he's about to die, which must have sent his whole family into great sorrow and fear, worry, doubt, panic, and anxiety. The anxiety and the fear become so great that the father moves in the only reasonable direction that he has left. Go find that miracle kid from Nazareth. Go find the guy. Friends, don't miss the providence and sovereignty of God in the text today. In the sickness of the son, who is right up at the point of death. Just as we heard in Levita's testimony earlier, the Lord will use few or many life circumstances, even hard stuff to guide you to the moment of your greatest panic and anxiety so that in that moment he can cause you to see 
that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You must come to know, you can't save yourself from death and hell, except by believing in the words of Jesus alone for salvation. Friends, please note, whether you say that God gave the boy the sickness, or the boy was sick because of his own personal sin, or he was sick because we live in a cursed world, or because of a lab leak in Wuhan, China, I digress. Any way you slice it, any way you slice it, his sickness unto death will be used by Jesus. Please get this. His sickness unto death will be used by Jesus to deliver eternal spiritual life to the kid's whole family. Somebody's in the back going, can I sign up for sickness today? No, no, you can't sign up for sickness today. What's the point, though? What's the point? The most vicious evil, hurtful, painful events in your life. God uses all to draw you to Jesus and open your eyes where God has determined when and where he wants to give you spiritual sight. Can you see spiritually that I'm telling you the truth? Do you know how much he has orchestrated the events and circumstances of your life for this moment? Can you see Jesus is fully God and fully man, not just a miracle maker, but Jesus is the actual embodiment of truth? Can you see that? At this moment, the royal official does not have spiritual eyes to see that Jesus is God. At this moment, many don't have the eyes to see that Jesus is God. He doesn't. This guy doesn't. He doesn't believe Jesus' teachings. He's not saved. He is spiritually dead. His faith is a false faith based on signs and rumors of signs. But in his moment of panic, the Lord gave him knowledge enough to know to who he should turn when life gets rough. Go to Jesus, the miracle guy. Go to him. Which brings us to the first of three tests of the royal official's faith. The first of three tests of the royal official's faith. We see in the text, number one, Jesus returns Jesus returns, and the question is, will the royal official come? Verse 47, Jesus returns, will the royal official come? Test number one, Jesus has returned to Galilee, will the royal official come to see him? We get the answer to spiritual character test number one when we read John 4, 47, where John says, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to Jesus and was asking him to come down and heal his son. For his son was about to die. This is all any one of us knew to do when we were saved. Go to Jesus. We've heard words of many zealous people in our lives and in our world who say good things about this guy, Jesus, and we don't have anywhere else to turn, so why not? Okay, fine. My arms are tied. I don't have anything left to do. Go to Jesus. Okay, I'll go to Jesus. Go to him. Find out for yourself. Without any great direction, knowing very little, if, if much of anything at all, we take this little tip from friends and family and the world around us and the Holy Spirit working and the Lord drawing us. We take this little tip, this tiny clue, and we seek Him where He can be found. We, we go to Jesus. We go in His Word, which is the Bible. We go to His church. We go talk with His people. It's not like Jesus' death on a cross was hid from the world, friends. The crucifixion of the Son of Man and the Son of God, for the sins of the world, was a very public, very memorable moment in history. So impactful was Jesus' death that, do you understand that every single financial tra transaction that you make is dated with the number of years since Jesus' birth, 2023? The world is not without general knowledge of Jesus' life and ministry. The world's problem is continual rebellion to his message. Just like all of us before salvation, the royal official isn't motivated by Jesus' message at all. His motivation is based on reports that Jesus performs miracles, for which the royal official is desperate for one of those. His heart is heavy due to the sickness of his son, which is so grave that his son is now on death's door. He's exhausted the medical resources available to him in the tiny fishing town of Capernaum on the northwest coastline of the Sea of Galilee, and now, in desperation, he races to find Jesus who he has heard is just a mere 16 miles away. 
16 miles might be a linear figure from Capernaum to Cana. Google Maps says it's more like 21 miles by foot. However, the elevation gain from Capernaum at the Sea of Galilee, below sea level, up to Cana, is over 1,600 feet, which might require a few switchbacks to travel safely up the hill. This journey could take seven hours, which would be a small price to pay for a desperate royal official if it meant the physical salvation of your son. We understand the depth of his desperation. We understand the depth of his desperation in his behavior, his behavior upon arrival in Jesus' presence. We're told in verse 47, he was asking him to come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. James Boyce notes that neither his rank nor riches were able to exempt him from the common sorrows of mankind. We live, friends, in a cursed world where we all suffer under all manner of sickness. We are all in a continual state of decay, which is further complicated by viruses, cancers, car accident, terrorist attack. We've lost three precious souls this year at Community Bible Church. You realize it's only by the grace of God that we're healthy today, that you woke up this morning, He's holding you together, let alone the idea that we have the prospect of life and health tomorrow. That's all Jesus' grace. But God did not graciously remove this boy's suffering. He didn't. Which should make us ask why. The answer becomes very easy to understand in our text. If you know the sovereignty of God and what he's doing to draw sinners unto him, you must understand that even the boy's sickness proves that all roads lead to Jesus for those who are God's elect. All roads point to Christ. And the answer for any of us is go to Christ. Get to Jesus. The royal official did get to Jesus and begin begging Jesus, not once but repeatedly in the Greek text. Asking is the Greek word erotao, which means to urge, beg, beseech, or request. Leon Morris notes that begged is in a continual tense, conveying the thought of a persistent request from the man. The man's need was urgent. You can feel this father's urgency in the Apostle John's report. As the Apostle John makes it clear, the boy's sickness had brought him to death's door. John MacArthur says, Swallowing his pride, this respected member of Herod's court begged for help from a carpenter's son. His belief in Jesus was not yet driven by a desire for salvation of his own soul, but by desperation for his son. And so we ask the question, Upon Jesus' return to Galilee, how does the royal official do with spiritual character test number one? How does he do? Let's go through the facts. His son is sick, nearing the point of death. By faith, he leaves his home and heads to Cana to find Jesus. And finding Jesus, he begins to beg him to come down to Capernaum. This is a pretty powerful case for great spiritual character in this man. He cares for his son. He believes in Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He begs and pleads for Jesus' healing help. You might be inclined to say, he did great, spiritually speaking. He came to Jesus. He passed the test. But does coming to Jesus mean that you have eternal, redeemed, grace-driven, godly, righteous, spiritual character? I'm hard-pressed to understand that's the case. Many people who come to Jesus believe that they're saved. Is coming to Jesus a clear sign of salvation? Does simply seeking out the miracle worker make a man spiritually born again a second time from above? Does finding, seeing, and talking with Jesus mean that a man has spiritual eyes with which to know Jesus? Does the man at this point of the story know Jesus? What's the answer to that question? Well, the answer to all of these questions is no. Friends, isn't it the very crux of the issue, saving faith versus fake faith, what we've been focused on all morning? Now, I will concede that the royal official has a faith. But I would never say the royal official has saving faith. This man is not, at this moment, born again. 
His faith in Jesus is not driven by the content of Jesus' message that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. His faith is performance-based. His faith is built on Jesus' miracles. The royal official doesn't want the giver. He simply wants the gift of physical salvation for his son. Friends, this is the definition of spiritual character failure. And as a result, the royal official bombs spiritual character test number one. And yet, here he is. Jesus brought him here. His miracles, his signs, they brought him right in front of him. Here he is to collect from Jesus a token physical world miracle that could likely be accomplished by the right portioning of apple cider vinegar with the mother, zinc, and ivermectin, and hot tea. Friends, that's a joke, okay? I'm not a medical doctor. <laughs> I've never taken ivermectin myself. But I, I haven't missed a day of work in over three years from sickness, which proves the power of God through zinc and hot tea, just saying. <laughs> Friends, consider what is happening here in Cana of Galilee in John 4. Consider what is happening. The rich royal official proves he is spiritually very poor because of the size and scope of his physical world request. He is spiritually very poor because of the size and scope of his physical world request. Spiritually poor. Consider the fact that Jesus just offered eternal life-giving living water to a woman at a well in Samaria. And here, in Jesus' hometown, the royal official comes in search of what amounts to the request for an emergency packet and adult-strength NyQuil. Really? Jesus is the giver of eternal life, the guy who put the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and the man asks for him to travel 16 miles by foot to raise a sick boy off of a bed. Clearly, the royal official's request is proof that his eyes are entertained only by physical world realities not at all by spiritual world realities. And let me tell you why. Let me explain his, fail, his, his faith failure further. The royal official's first spiritual test failure includes three points of errant theology related to miracles and signs, which further prove his failed spiritual character. His errant theology includes the belief that, number one, the first point of errant theology, number one, miracles must be timely. Miracles must be timely. They must come right on time, now, now, now. Repeatedly, continuously, the royal official is begging Jesus, now, 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 you must come save my son now. All the while, he had no idea that Jesus is the guy who made human beings. And he can raise the dead to life, as we will find out when we get to John chapter 11. If you want to read ahead this afternoon, go ahead and do that. It's in John 11 where Jesus intentionally allows Lazarus to die and to be dead for three days before raising him from the dead. The royal official seems to be holding Jesus to the man-centered standard of fix my physical problem now, which is errant theology that does not honor Jesus' deity, his omnipotence, he's all-powerful, or his omniscience, he's all-knowing. And it's proof that this man does not know Jesus personally. Second, the second point of errant theology is number two, Second, we see he believes miracles require travel. Miracles require travel. He believes that Jesus needs to be physically present with his son in Capernaum in order to save his life. Clearly, we know this is wrong. Jesus' signs and miracles and healings do not require travel. Jesus does not need to be on location in order to fix anyone's physical life ailment. Jesus can heal in person and he can heal right out of heaven. He is not bound by physical presence to perform healing on any human being, which he formed, friends, out of the dirt of the ground. This man, again, we just see he doesn't know Jesus at all. James Boyce says, presumably, the nobleman thought that Jesus would have to touch his son to heal him, which calls to our attention a potential third point of errant theology. If it was the case that this man believed that Jesus needed to touch him, we would see a third point of errant theology. Number three, miracles require touch. Do miracles require touch? He, believe, he might believe this. Miracles require touch. That's why you've got to come down to Capernaum. You've got to touch him. Lay hands on him. If the point of getting Jesus to his son's bedside was for Jesus to lay hands on the lad, again, we see that the royal official does not comprehend the nature of the God-man standing in front of him. 
nor does he understand the God of the prophets of his people if he is in fact a Jew, as many theologians believe. Now, whether or not a Jew, the text does not say, this man doesn't understand the theology of the people of Galilee who believe in the authority of God's word from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, through the history books and the wisdom literature and the prophetic texts in the Old Testament, which provide ample evidence that not even God's prophets need to be present for the miracles they speak to take effect. Take, for instance, Naaman the Syrian, the Syrian commander whose body was riddled with leprosy. He came to Elisha, Elisha, the man of God, who was in Samaria, to ask for a blessing and a cure. Now, Elisha never saw Naaman. He never spoke to him personally, never looked at him, never touched the man physically. Elisha even sent a servant to deliver to him the content of the verbal blessing, which didn't require Elisha to be present when the blessing was effected. Which is to say, the touch of the prophet is not required for God, for the God of the prophet to perform the miracle that the God of the prophet prescribed. And I really hope that you can see what I'm saying. What I'm saying to you is this. The royal official was treating Jesus with less faith than Naaman the Syrian treated Elisha. Elisha was a prophet. Jesus is God. There's a difference. The royal officials failed theology on three key aspects of Jesus' healing abilities. Time is no issue. Travel is no issue. Touch is no issue. When Jesus is willing to perform physical world miracles. And when we really dig deep and study the implications of the comments of the royal official and give consideration to his motivations for coming to Jesus, we have to be alarmed and even appalled at the pathetic self-serving faith the royal official directed at Jesus when he showed up in Cana. Now, I'm not trying to disparage the character of the royal official, who is, after all, my brother in heaven. The purpose of our evaluation is to evaluate saving faith, salvation, and see the genuine character of true saving faith, which is obviously a great concern to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the size of Jesus' concern for the failed spiritual character of the royal official as we come to the second of three tests of the royal official's faith. The second of three tests of the royal official's faith. We see this in verses 48 and 49. We come to point number two, Jesus' rebuke. Jesus' rebuke. Will he stay is the question. Jesus is going to give a rebuke. Will the royal official stay. The, the royal official's failed spiritual character test provides the occasion for Jesus to address both the sign-seeking father and the Galilean spectators seeking the sensational. Looking at the man, but speaking to y'all, John reports of Jesus in 448, so Jesus said to him, the royal official, unless y'all people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Now, friends, this is a stunning rebuke. Jesus uses a double negative to stress the totality of his disappointment and frustration. The official's physical world focus, faith failure, is typical of the fraudulent, phony faith expressed by Galileans toward Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus let all of them hear the extent of his frustration with them. So we ask, will the royal official stay? James Boyce says, this was the equivalent of calling him a curiosity seeker and was perhaps directed as much toward the crowd that had gathered as to the nobleman. It was a test of the man's faith or sincerity. Again, will the man stick around or will he run away at this rebuke? Ed Klink says, what the Galileans saw in Jesus was not who he truly was. It was who they selfishly wanted him to be. They thought themselves to be healthy, when in truth they were already dead. This is why Jesus speaks right past the Father to the crowds, right past the concern of that Father to the concern of His own Heavenly Father. There's a Father in focus in this text, and it's the Father in Heaven. Jesus and His Father demand belief in Jesus' words the substance of Jesus' message. Clearly, Jesus knows that this is not what these people are delivering to him. He knows that phony faith 
He knows what it looks like and sounds like. Do you know that Jesus knows what phony faith looks like and sounds like? Do you know he can tell whether your faith is real or fake? Many people love to say about their faith and the faith of others, believe what you want to believe, worship how you want to worship. No one can see your heart, only God can. You need to do what's best for you on your spiritual journey. Friends, these are not loving words. These are the thoughts of idolaters. Let me tell you about the heart of the one that would say these things and have such foul, vile words of ignorance, truthlessness, and idolatry coming off of these tongues. People who make these comments have made a God in their own image and have begun to worship their snuggly, cuddly, little g-god who doesn't hold them accountable to truth and righteousness. Their God is easy to worship because their God never talks back. It never talks back because their God is themselves. And their faith, regardless of what they say about Jesus himself personally, their faith is fake faith, phony faith. These people often feel obligated, like Muslims, to say that Jesus is a prophet, he's a really good guy, but they deny his deity because they deny his claims for deity, they deny his words. Jesus said himself very plainly in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. He said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Either Jesus was a madman worthy of the rejection of the world and the blasphemy of the world who use his name as a cuss word, either he's worthy of that or Jesus is God. It's either A or B, friends. There's no neutrality here. You're either all in, he's king, Lord, savior, or you're all out, he's a crazy man. There's no neutral ground. Moreover, friends, Jesus did not leave us without enough information to discern true faith from fake faith. We know what the fruit of the Holy Spirit living inside of the heart of a man looks like from Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the list goes on and on. And Jesus told a crowd in Galilee at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7.17, he said to them, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a bad tree bear bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the eternal fire. That's hell. And so then he says, you will know them by their fruit. You now on earth will know them by their fruits. In John 4:48, Jesus was fed up with his hometown neighbors who were all in on his miracle working, but they were all out on his message of faith alone in him for salvation. The fruit of their fake faith was extremely obvious and worthy of rebuke. In fact, there are three targets of Jesus' rebuke in our text today. Target number one of Jesus' rebuke is Jesus' rebuke of the request of the royal official. Jesus rebukes the request of the royal official. Not because Jesus won't save sick kids, but because the royal official has faulty priorities. He's focused on the physical world and wants Jesus to join him in his physical world focus, while Jesus is focused only on the spiritual for which the royal official is clueless and without concern. R.C. Sproul says, Jesus did not grant the request. And you would think that if Jesus really cared, that when he saw the man in absolute agony about the life of his son, that he would have said, I'll go to your home and I'll help you immediately. However, says Sproul, I, I think Jesus recognized that the man came to him out of an earthly need, one that had nothing to do with a desire for salvation. Jesus rebuked his request. Second, the second target of, of rebuke, Jesus rebukes the motivations of the crowd and the royal official. They've come because Jesus is a spectacle, not a savior. They want to see miracles, not the maker of the heavens and the earth. They want wonders at which to marvel, not the wonderful counselor who alone can calm their innermost pains and anxious thoughts. Edward Clink says, Jesus is rebuking faith that is inappropriately motivated. And so he rebukes their motivation. That's the second target. The third target, Jesus rebukes the faith of the crowd and the royal official. He rebukes their faith. This gets personal. Target number three, the rebuke of their faith. This is a direct assault to your integrity. He's telling them, look, I've heard what you said, but you don't believe. You don't believe. Currently, right now, you are an unbeliever. That's what Jesus says to these people. 
When looking at Jesus' rebuke, you, you must notice Jesus is not sharing his understanding of how they will come to proper belief. He is simply declaring that he knows their system of belief. He knows they require signs and wonders before they will place their pseudo-fake, phony faith in the wonder worker Jesus. What do you call it when someone will only give if they get first? In legal terms, it's called a quid pro quo transaction. Merriam-Webster says a quid pro quo is something given or received for something else. Jesus' words, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's what you think theology is all about, salvation is all about. Jesus' third target in this rebuke is the quid pro quo faith of the Galileans and the royal official. They will believe, but first, Jesus must pay up with signs. Jesus knows this style of self-serving, idolatrous faith all too well. He's watched this wicked faith in human beings, which he made in his image and likeness, since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden 6,500 years ago. It disgusts him then, and it disgusts him now. Quid pro quo faith is the path to eternal death. It's idolatry. It's entirely self-serving, and Jesus fully rebukes the quid pro quo faith of the desperate father and the flaky, miracle-chasing Galileans. Turn your Bibles to John 20, 29. John 20, 29. Remember, Jesus' rebuke is a spiritual test of character for the crowd and for the royal official. The test is simple enough. In the face of Jesus' needful rebuke of his self-serving, sensational, science-seeking faith, will the royal official race on home with his tail between his legs, or will he stick around? Will he explode in a fit of anger and rage, or will he rightly respond to Jesus? How will he respond to Jesus' rebuke? How will the royal official respond in this moment? Now, I'm going to test your patience and make you come back and find out the answer to that next week. <laughs> we'll do well to labor long enough if we consider our own faith in light of Jesus' rebuke. We need to answer a few questions ourselves in light of the text that we've just read to discern the motivation of our own faith in Jesus Christ. Do we believe in order to get stuff from Jesus? Or do we believe because Jesus' words are truth? Have we, at times, even now, this morning, set up a quid pro quo faith in Jesus, choosing to believe only if he meets our physical world needs? Are our greatest needs, are they physical or spiritual, friends? Do we know Jesus so well that we can close our eyes and pray to him now, fully trusting that he hears our prayers and will answer us, in accord with his will for his glory and good? Do we know the love of God that is in a person named Jesus? Do we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Has Jesus satisfied all of the desires of our souls in the fact that he took our sins to the cross and suffered God's wrath in our place at Calvary? Do you believe that Jesus' blood cleanses you of all sin? That's the content of his message. You've got to believe that. You shouldn't need a sign to believe that. That's just truth, and you need that saving truth. That's the gospel. That's the message that Jesus came to earth to preach to these people. Either you believe his words and you go with him to heaven forever, or you reject his words and you go to hell. And friends, there is only one response, one righteous response to Jesus' rebuke of false faith in John 4, 48, and that is the response of belief. You must believe. 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 Without the need of signs and miracles, believe that Jesus' words are true. Believe that you are a wicked sinner. Believe that you need a Savior. And believe that Jesus is the only Savior who died for the sins of his people. Believe that guy. All men are born in a state of unbelief. Jesus knows this very well. And for this reason, he had to make a special trip to see the doubter Thomas, who was a bold unbeliever until he saw Jesus that Jesus was truly resurrected from the dead. Only then did Thomas look on Jesus and say in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. Jesus' response to Thomas is critical for us today. We read in John 20, 29, Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And the apostle John then tells us the whole purpose of his gospel, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. 
But these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Father in heaven, this is our desire this morning, that we truly believe the content of the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus Christ, miracle worker, sign maker, he supplied beautiful proofs to this sin-sick world of his divine power. Yes, Jesus claimed to be God. And as such, even now, Father in heaven, we bow our knee before the maker of heaven and earth, the Savior of the world who died for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us honor him in thought, word, and deed, and even now in song. Amen.